What does the Bible say about Christians attending specific types of movies that are prevalent in society? Horror, magic such as Harry Potter, mythology movies such as Clash of the Titans. Also, what about R-rated movies with excessive violence, nudity, and language? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Ironic that when he came to earth, uh, there was no room for him, and all we could manage to provide was a manger. And someday, he's invited us to his house, and there'll be room for every single person. Have you ever met a person that told you that they weren't a big city person? A lot of people are like that. They think of big cities as places that are overgrown, overcrowded, run down, and sometimes just plain dangerous. That may be true, but did you know that God is preparing a city that will be so big that it dwarfs anything man will ever build? It's almost incomprehensible. It's almost too much to take in. The sheer size of this thing is just immense. But if you think about it, it makes sense. The city is a reflection of its architect. And because our God is a God who has no limits, then it would stand a reason to me, why wouldn't this city that he's prepared for us, why wouldn't it display the grandeur and the greatness of God? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today in our year-long study of the book of Revelation, we come to the last half of chapter 21 and the description of the New Jerusalem. The description that John the Apostle gives is incredible, but it's a description that causes us to ask some questions. Is this a real place? How big will it be? Who will be there? What will it look like? The things that that this world considers the most priceless, the most valuable things in all the earth, they're just common building materials in the city of God. (laughs) I think that's awesome. As we've learned throughout this study, God doesn't always tell us everything we may want to know, but He does tell us everything we need to know to continue to walk by faith. As Pastor Clay is going to show us today, this is one big city that everyone will want to live in. We're glad you've joined us as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 through the end of the chapter, as we look at something that is bigger than anything you've ever seen before. Here we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, y'all remember those angels way back when we looked at the seven last plagues, he came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Remember, just to remind you, John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there by the Roman government. And while there, God gives him a vision of end time events and what will transpire. And so as part of that vision, the angel comes to him and in this vision takes him up on this high mountain where he can see and he sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. 
and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. You ready for this? The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. How do you like that, ladies? And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 through 27. As we begin this morning, I want to make two statements about uh, this, this new city, this new Jerusalem, this city of God, as I like to refer to it. I want to make two statements about it. Now, when I say that I want to make two statements about it, that is not to say that I am the only one who would make these statements. Uh, there would be a number of, of biblical students, a number of biblical scholars that would agree with me about the two statements that I'm going to make. But not everyone would agree about the statements that I'm going to make. And the reason that there would be various opinions in dealing with this portion of the book of Revelation is the same reason that there have been various opinions throughout the study of the book of Revelation. And that is, what we have learned is that in the study of any prophetic book, there is always a significant amount of symbolism used in that book. And any student of that book has to prayerfully consider what God's Word is actually saying and what the application of it is into our lives. And we have to determine often in the symbolism whether it is literal, whether it is symbolic. And so there are differences of opinion sometimes in the interpretation. And so we find it also in chapter 21. As a matter of fact, uh, John Walvoord, who I'll quote a few times uh, today in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says this in regards to that interpretation problem. In interpreting the description of the heavenly city, 
That's what we're doing here in chapter 21. The problem of symbolic interpretation comes to the fore, perhaps more than in any other section of the book of Revelation. So not everyone would would perhaps agree with these two statements. Now, having said that, I want to remind you of what my basic uh, first rule of interpretation is for determining uh, the the proper uh, revelation of the book. And, And my first rule of interpretation looks like this. Always take the literal interpretation of the text. Always take the text literally unless the text itself clearly states that it's intended to be symbolic or the context strongly implies that the text is to be symbolic. Always take the text at face value. Always take it and say, this, is, this must be literally true unless the text itself clearly says that, that it's speaking symbolically or the context of this verse, verse of Scripture you're dealing with strongly implies that it is tend to be symbolic. Let me, let me give you an example of what I mean when I say the context implies that it is intended to be symbolic. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, some people would look at that and say, well, look at that. Je- Jesus is, is saying that he's, a, that he's a door. Jesus is saying that he's a, he's a three by seven uh, a piece of wood. And yet the context clearly shows that Jesus is talking about eternal life. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about how to, re- how to have a relationship with God. And so the context is clearly showing that, it is, that he's not speaking literally. He's not intended to be taking literally. He's not saying, I'm a piece of wood on hinges that swings back and forth. Okay? So the context reveals that it's intended to be symbolic. Now, listen to me. Having said that, even when a text is, is to be taken symbolically and not literally, that does not mean that it's not delivering literal truth. For instance, in John chapter 10, Jesus is not saying that he is an actual literal physical wooden door, but he is saying that he is the passageway through which eternal life is obtained. And no one obtains eternal life unless they go through him. So in that sense, he is the door. Understand? Thanks. <laughs> all right. Now, having said all of that and, and said that this, there's always going to be people when you're discussing, especially a prophetic book and looking at, you know, is it literal? Is it symbolic? All that kind of thing. There's always going to be some disagreement about it. Having said that, now I want to give you the two statements about uh, this uh, final part of Revelation chapter 21. The first statement is this. It is a, I believe, it's a literal city. I believe that this city that we've just read about that's described in Revelation chapter 21, I really believe it's a literal city, that it's an actual physical place that you and I will inhabit. You and I, meaning those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we've given our lives to him, that there is actually going to be this place that is physically, literally true, real, tangible. Not everyone believes that. Um, for a couple of different reasons. Because in verse 9, there's this reference to this city being the, the bride of Christ, which the church is sometimes referred to as the bride of Christ in other places in Scripture. Because of that, and because of the... How do I put this? Because of the uh, grandeur 
of this city, because of the vastness and the greatness of this city, some people have looked at it and said, there's just no way this could actually be a literal city. This must be symbolic. I think that this must represent, and some people believe that it represents the church, the bride of Christ, that it's, that it's talking about the church and that, and that it's big because lots of people are part of the family of God uh, and so it's, it's the church or it might even represent all of God's people for all ages. Well, it is true that the people who inhabit a city are really what makes that city the city and not necessarily the, uh, the, the structure or the buildings or anything else like that. But the main problem I have with that is that when you read Revelation chapter 21, the, the, the description of it, the measurements of it, seem too exact. They seem too precise to be intended to be symbolic. In other words, as I read it, there's nothing in the context of this passage of Scripture that would lead me to believe that John intends for us to take it symbolically. And so, I believe it's an actual Literal, physical city. Second statement is this. I also believe it's an eternal city. This is not the Jerusalem of the millennium kingdom. That, you remember that thousand year period of time right after the tribulation period? This is not that Jerusalem. I, I, I do not believe. Ezekiel's description of that Jerusalem is too different from John's description of this new Jerusalem here in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, so I believe it is an actual eternal city. In regards to the eternality of it, again, John Walvoord says this. This will be a perfect environment in contrast to the centuries of human sin and the saints will enjoy this perfect situation through all eternity to come. All eternity to come. The inhabitants of the city will be characterized by eternal life and absolute moral purity. We'll talk about that last part in a minute. But all eternity to come, characterized by eternal life. I believe that this city that is described in Revelation chapter 21 is, is the very end. Uh, it is, the, it is the, this new Jerusalem, this actual literal city coming down and God's people will dwell in it. Now, those are the two statements that I want to make. Now, having made those two statements, I want to use the remainder of the time this morning to quickly try and cover with you what I see as five characteristics about this city. Because, you know, I think what we really want to know is, you know, what's it going to be like? What, what is this place going to be like? Well, we don't, we don't have all of those answers. But, but I do want to give you some characteristics of the city that, that I find here in Revelation chapter 21. The first characteristic is this. It's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful city. Uh, John's description, as I said a moment ago, it, it's almost incomprehensible. It's almost too much to take in. The, the sheer size of this thing is, is just, it's just immense. But if you think about it, it makes sense. Because the city is a reflection of its architect. The city is a reflection of its builder. And because our God is a God who has no limits, because our God is a God of, of immense grandeur and glory, then it would stand a reason to me, why wouldn't this city that he's prepared for us, why wouldn't it display the grandeur and the greatness of God? The text says that it is 1,500 miles square. Get your mind around that a moment, ladies and gentlemen. That would roughly take up three-quarters of the size of the United States just to give you sort of a practical idea. 1,500 miles 
on uh, each side. And the text says in verse 16 that it's 1,500 miles high. Now, that may mean, and a lot of people do believe, that, it, that it's a cube, that this city is an actual cube. The text allows for that. But some people believe that it actually may be a pyramid, and the text allows for that as well. It just says 1,500 miles high. Not that all sides are 1,500 miles high. And some people believe that it could be a cube. Uh, I don't know which one it is, but I'll confess to you, I do find the pyramid idea intriguing considering historically man's fascination with pyramids. I really don't think we have to spend a lot of time on the size of it. The point is, <laughs> there'll be plenty of room for everybody. There'll be plenty of room for anybody that wants to come in. As, as the, uh, the old song by whoever goes, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. And, and look at this thing. I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Listen to this description. I, and I want to give you some of these. If you want to, happen to want to fill these in, I want to give you some of what what most people believe that these stones are, what they, what they look like, what color they are, and, and all this kind of stuff. I want you to think about this. The things that men and women spend their lives trying to obtain, the things that, that men and women seek to adorn themselves with, the things that, that this world considers the most priceless, the most valuable things in all the earth, they're just common building materials in the city of God. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome. Let's look at some of the... Uh, uh, some of the uh, different stones that are, that are mentioned here in different building materials. First one is jasper. Most uh, commentators agree that, they don't, that it's not jasper as we know it today. It would be more what, is, what we would consider a blue-white diamond because of John's description that he gives here. Ja- the jasper and the construction of, of both the, the, the city walls and the first foundation stone. Um, the next material mentioned is gold. Uh, but it's apparently... Uh, or probably not gold as we know it today. Uh, the Greek word, by the way, uh, can just mean uh, clear crystal. Apparently it is a gold of such, such purity, such brilliance, that, that either it, it's reflective as a, as a crystal or a clear stone might be, or it's perhaps even uh, uh, see-through. Whatever it is, it's of incredible, incredible beauty. Uh, the next stone mentioned is a sapphire. It's a deep blue stone sprinkled with, with brilliant bits of iron pyrite that would almost act as uh, metal flake uh, for us uh, car guys, uh, shining, just glittering, almost like glitter within the stone. Um, next is uh, uh, chalcedony. Uh, by the way, I, I did look that up to try and figure out how to pronounce it, and that's what the lady kept saying, chalcedony. No, I said, no, chalcedony, chalcedony, okay. Sky blue with uh, strips of other colors uh, running through it. Uh, next is uh, emerald. Emerald is a light, uh, a bright, uh, light green uh, color. And I know I'm kind of going through these kind of quick, but um, uh, this is just, just information that you may be interested in. Um, next is sardonyx. It's a red and white uh, stone, probably red and, and white uh, stripes in it. Sardius is a reddish color. Some people even describe it as like a blood red uh, color. Chrysolite, a yellowish uh, golden type stone in, in its color. And apparently can vary from more of a yellow to, to more of a, of a gold. Uh, Burl is a sea green color. Topaz is a yellow green color. And um, Jacinth, which is also sometimes referred to as hyacinth, 
is uh, predominantly a violet uh, color, but it can also take on some orange. Some stones have orange or sort of an orangish color uh, to them. And then the last one is the amethyst, uh, which is a purple uh, color. I, I, I don't know what you say, except that it's just, it's just beautiful. It's just a rainbow of colors involved in, in this construction of this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city of God. Um, second characteristic, let me just move along real quickly. The second characteristic uh, is this. Not only is it a beautiful city, uh, but it's the security of the city as well. Um, in the text there, it, it makes reference to the fact that the gates shall never be closed. In ancient times, the gates of a city's walls uh, were always closed at night or any time that there was a potential for danger. Uh, you know, some marauding armies or some conquering, whatever, close our gates. Because, because if the gates are open, um, uh, they're going to they're storm in, they're going to take over, they're going to conquer us, they're going to kill us. Uh, in this new Jerusalem, the gates will never be closed. It's, it's the picture of absolute security. You know, I want you to think about that for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. You and I live in a world of gated communities and uh, 911 calls and security systems. But someday God says he's going to prepare for us a dwelling place where fear will be non-existent. Think about what it would be like to never fear anything again. Is that, can I even comprehend what that would be like? By the way, the walls of the city, I didn't really get into that in verse 17, but it says they're, they're 72 yards. That's about 216 feet. Uh, could be its height, could be its width, could be any combination thereof. I, I don't know. But the part of the purpose of the gates or the walls were just to display the glory of, of the city, which displays the glory again of its builder. They're not there for security. The, the gates aren't there for security because they're left open all the time. It's the security of the city, this, this place that we will be in forever and ever with no fear. Connected to that is the third characteristic. It's the purity of the city. In the last verse of chapter 21, there in verse 27, it says this, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Sounds very similar. If, if you were here uh, when, when we looked at it, it sounds very similar to the language at the very end of, ch- of, verse, of chapter 20. Uh, do you remember that? When it said this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, this, this, this purpose here that we find God involved in is the same thing we've seen throughout this book of Revelation. We find God warning people outside of relationship with him of what their eternity looks like if they continue to reject him. And here in verse 21, one more time, he comes again, and there's this warning of, of what's, at, what's at stake or what's to come if people don't turn their lives over to him. When it says, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, not talking about some person, well, I lied one time, does that mean I can't get a no? We talked about that last week. What it's talking about is a person whose life demonstrates 
their rejection of God, their rebellion against God, and their continual practices of things that are contrary to what God wills for their life. So it is a warning to those, but it's also, I, I think this idea, this, this purity that he speaks of at the end of the chapter is also intended to be an encouragement to you and to me. There'll be no deciding what's right, what's proper, what's not. God will have already determined those things. And the, to think of the idea that nothing immoral or impure or, or, or stained with sin will ever enter into that city, and it will be a city of complete purity. Fourth characteristic uh, looks like this. It's the unity of the city. Uh, you may have noticed as we read through it in verse 12, it mentions that on the, na- on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse 14, on the foundation stones are the names of the 12 apostles. Um, in verse uh, 24 or somewhere in there, it talks about the, the nations. The, the Greek word is the ethne. The, the Gentiles, the, the nations of the world, it makes reference to them being a part of this. The description is one in which all of God's people from all generations, from all time, from all backgrounds, coming together in complete unity. And ladies and gentlemen, that is something that this world has never seen before. Because, because from the very beginning of time, men have hated other men because of the color of their skin or because of their, their cultural background or their ethnic background or because of which side of a map lines they were, they were uh, born in, or because of uh, whatever the differences might be, whatever other wicked and sinful reasons that the heart of man can come up with to hate other men, but not in this city. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation period saints, millennium saints, all of God's people gathered together in one place in complete harmony and complete unity. No more, think about this, ladies and gentlemen, no more Serbs versus Bosnians, no more uh, Jews versus Arabs, uh, no more Hatfields versus McCoys, uh, no, no more anything but complete and perfect unity. Um, when Cindy and I, we had to go to Nashville a couple of weeks ago for a funeral for a young lady that had been in our youth group uh, many years ago. When we were there after the funeral, they had a, um, a dinner for the family. And uh, they asked us to, at, at the church, and uh, they asked us to come back and to attend uh, the dinner. It's the church where we served on staff there for, for a number of years. And uh, while we were there and while we were all in the fellowship hall eating the meal, uh, a lady pointed out to me a gentleman who is uh, serving as their interim pastor. Their pastor recently resigned. And uh, this gentleman who's serving as their uh, interim pastor, well, he's not officially their interim pastor yet. He's doing preaching for them and they they uh, haven't made a decision yet on that. But, but he, his, his, uh, his skin tone is different than everybody else that attends that church, okay? His, his skin uh, color is different. And uh, this lady uh, pointed him out to me, and, uh, uh, and she said, uh, look at there, that, that, that's, our, that's our preacher. Did you ever think you'd, you'd see a day when, 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 we, uh, when we'd let somebody look like him uh, preach here? I couldn't help but have a little fun with that. Uh, he, he, the gentleman, he was, really, he was a sharp-dressed guy, but he had a suit on that looked a little different because the stitching of the suit was a different color from the, from the suit. And so I looked at her and I said, you mean because of his suit? She looked at me like I was out of my mind. You know, she didn't say it, but I could just, I could just tell. She's just like, are you colorblind? He's black. <laughs> 
I am so grateful. Uh, it's one of the things I truly am grateful for is that in, in this eternal city, in a sense, everybody will be colorblind. It, it won't make any difference anymore about anybody or, or, or any language or, or any, any of that stuff, but complete and total unity. It'll be a characteristic of this city. One final uh, characteristic this morning, and uh, uh, it's probably, I guess it's the best of all. Uh, they're all good, but it's the glory of the city. In verse 11, the first thing John mentions that he notices about the city is it says it's, it, this city, it's having the glory of God in it. Look at some of the other references in the rest of the way in verse uh, uh, 22. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are, in, are, are its temple. Verse 23 and 24. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Verse uh, 26, I think it is. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into to it. I, I don't, as, as I've said in the rest of the description, I don't know that we can even comprehend what it will be like to be in the presence of God. We talked about this briefly last week, to be in the presence of God for all of eternity, to be in the very glory of God. I don't pretend to know what all that means when we talk about the glory of God, but I know that, that this place will be of such radiance, of such majesty, of such magnitude, that it will be beyond anything we can imagine. In Exodus chapter 40, when, the, uh, when Moses and the Israelites finished construction on the tabernacle, the, the portable temple that they carried around in the wilderness with them. When they finished the construction of that, it, said, it says that a cloud came down and, and encompassed that, that tabernacle, that tent. And the glory of the Lord came down into that place. And the text says that Moses could not enter in because of the glory of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, when Solomon uh, finishes completion of the building of the, of the permanent temple, what was designed to be the permanent temple in Jerusalem, uh, and it says that fire fell and consumed the, the, uh, the sacrifices that were offered there, and smoke came up, and the glory of God came down, and the text says that the, that the priests could not enter into the temple because of the glory of God. But someday... With no more need for a a physical temple. Because of the blood of Christ. Because you and I who have come to him are are washed in that blood. And made righteous in his sight. Because of that we will be in the very presence of the glory of God for all of eternity. You see that's another thing. The prophet Ezekiel described uh, a time when the glory left Solomon's temple. Because of the rebellion and because of the sin of the people. That the glory of God departed. But you and I will be in the glory of God forever in his presence for eternity without end i think it's ironic this time of year uh, we celebrate the birth of our savior i i think that it's ironic that when he came to earth uh, there was no room for him and all we could manage to provide was a manger and someday he's invited us to his house and the glory and the majesty and the beauty of that place will be beyond description and there'll be room for every single person. The gates will remain open for all of eternity, apparently implying that the people of God will be able to come and go and enjoy all of God's new earth creation and it will be amazing. But we will always have a a room, a home in the house of the Lord. And to that, I say, hallelujah. 
It almost boggles the mind, doesn't it? A city 1,500 miles square, filled with every type of precious jewel and gold, and more importantly, filled with the presence of God. For believers, we have the promise of an eternal home that will never need remodeling or updating, but will continue to radiate the glory of God throughout all of eternity as we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540 Exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Got one that really I've had for quite some time. Uh, but I've just been waiting to do it, and it's Christmas season. At Christmas season, one of the things about Christmas season uh, that Hollywood jumps on is the release of new films right around Christmas time, right? And so here's our question of the day that we take. We have cards back there. If you don't know what that is, uh, you got a question, uh, we want to try and deal with it if the Bible does. Q&A for today looks like this, and this is just how it was written up. What does the Bible say about Christians attending specific types of movie that are prevalent in society? Uh, horror, magic, uh, such as Harry Potter, mythology movies such as Clash of the Titans, etc. Also, what about rated R movies with excessive violence, nudity, and language? Well, really that question is a little easier to answer than you might think. There's a little-known passage of Scripture a lot of people haven't come across before in Jedediah chapter 3 that says this, Keep thy eyes and thy mind from the presentation of fictional story, lest thou become addicted to popcorn and use too many quotes from The Godfather. Uh, <laughs> that's not really a Bible verse. No. Just having a little fun with y'all. No, obviously the Bible doesn't specifically deal with movies and whether you know whether you should see movies or not see movies. I saw some of y'all were writing that verse down already, weren't you? I didn't even know that was in there. Bible doesn't deal specifically with mood. What the Bible does deal with is giving us principles or parameters for living our lives in a way that would honor or glorify God. It does tell us that when a person comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, certainly our lives should begin to take on different characteristics as a result of that. Uh, some of you probably are familiar with this passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God or because of the mercy of God in your life, to present your bodies is a, is a present continuous tense verb to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service 
of worship. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says this. uh, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, before you knew about Christ, before you came into relationship with Christ, he's saying don't conform to that pattern the way you used to live. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, that word holy, of course, uh, means separated. It means different. And and really, in, in... The context is referring to our particular lives. Having come into a relationship with Christ, I'm separate now from the way I used to live my life when I didn't even think about God or include God in my decisions or whether it was uh, pleasing to Him or not pleasing to Him or honoring to Him or not honoring to Him. And as a result of that, that brings me out of a world system. Uh, it separates me from that system uh, because uh, God is in my life and He has different expectations on my life. Now, I'm not saying, and Peter's not saying, that going to watch movies is in itself inherently uh, evil. Uh, it's not. What he's saying is that, as I said, our lives are different or should be different as a result of coming into relationship with Christ. When talking about recreational or social type uh, things, people tend to take one of two extremes, right? Uh, the first extreme would be what's known as legalism. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I was visiting my grandparents, and uh, I saw this commercial on TV for these TV magic cards, and uh, they were selling them at Ecker Drug. So I, I rode my bike down to Ecker Drug, picked me up some of the TV magic cards, and they, you know, they're really cool. They look like a regular deck of cards, and you flipped them over, and whoo, it's magic. They're all the same, uh, same card. You know, it's like magic. And I got them cards, and I brought those cards home, and I got them out and, uh, on the porch, and I was playing with them, and my grandmother walked in. And she saw those cards, buddy, and it was... Woo! <laughs> she flipped a major brick. I mean, it was like those cards were the devil's workshop as far as she was concerned. And if I did not get rid of those cards, I was going straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You better get on your bike and take those cards back right now. To me, that was a tad legalistic, I thought. The other extreme is what is known as antinomianism. It uh, comes from the Greek word namos, which means law, and anti, against. So an antinomian is against law. It's someone that's, that says this. It both in, by the way, this was in Paul's days, in the New Testament times, and also still today. You'll find people say, hey, hey, we're covered. It's, it's God's grace. We're covered under the grace of Christ. It doesn't matter. I can do anything I want because it's all good. I don't have to obey a bunch of rules and regulations or any of that. It's all, it's all in the grace. Matter of fact, some people push it so far as to say that we ought to go out and sin a bunch. Just sin as much as you can because that way the grace of God can be displayed that much more. Obviously, neither one of those uh, extremes is healthy. Uh, What we need in our lives is balance, biblical balance to know how to judge what do we allow into our lives and what do we not allow into our lives. In Romans chapter 12, again in verse 2, we find this, and do not be conformed to this world. Now watch this, but be transformed or be changed. And what you already established in Romans 12, 1 and in 1 Peter 1 that we're supposed to be changed as a result of coming to a relationship with Christ, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. In other words, so this is how you'll know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In Philippians chapter 1, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more 
in how? In real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that's coming out of your life, which comes or as a result of your relationship with Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then one more, Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is where your mind should be. Now, does that mean that a Christian can never participate in some type of activity that has no spiritual value to it? No, I don't think that's what it means. But what it does mean is that you and I have to evaluate everything that we do against the criteria of God's word and whether it's something that we should allow to come into our lives or not. Whatever your standard is for movies, and and you may have some, you may have none, whatever it is, it needs to line up with God's word. And you need to ask yourself as you go to see that movie or maybe after you come out of a movie sometimes and say, wow, was that that really something that honored God? Is that really something that that I should have watched uh, and, and by the way, it wouldn't just be movies or television. It, 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 it includes every decision I make. The, what clothes I determine to wear or how I choose to spend my money or, or uh, what I listen to on the radio or any type of activities. How does it stack up against God's word? Is it filling me with his knowledge or is, it, is God's word helping me make discernment that will be decisions that will honor and glorify him? So it wouldn't be a bad idea when you're getting ready to check out and see what movies are showing, um, regardless of the rating, and I think rate, you ought to look at the ratings, but regardless of the rating, ask yourself this. Is this something that's going to honor God uh, or it, maybe it's not any spiritual value to it, but is it something that God would desire for me to put into me. And that's uh, Q&A for today.